Luke 24, beginning with verse 13. Now, on that same day, so this is still Easter, later that same day, Easter afternoon, perhaps, let's say. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, recognizing him. And he said to him, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have taken place here in these days? That's funny. He asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women uh, of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they didn't find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Then he said to him, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, we've got to pause there. That's about halfway through the story. So, But you get the idea. It's, it's Easter afternoon, uh, and two of Jesus' disciples, not members of the 12, but, but two of Jesus' disciples are walking from Jerusalem toward Emmaus, we're told, a, a city about seven miles away. Um, and by the way, I'll just point out, there, there is a solid tradition um, that this couple is actually a husband and wife couple. Cleopas is, is named. Um, there's a solid tradition that the unnamed traveling companion is the wife of Cleopas named Mary. And I, I love that image. Um, so it says that they're confused. They obviously have lots to discuss. It's been a crazy week, climaxing in this, I guess you could say, in this very disappointing conclusion. Jesus had been horrifically crucified. Um, uh, and then to top it all off, now they're told about the tomb being empty, and they're just, it adds to the confusion. They just don't know uh, what to think. And while they're walking and talking and grieving and wondering and bewildered and all of that, um, Jesus actually joins them on their hike, their journey, their walk. They don't recognize him. And Jesus asks him what they're talking about. And you know, I love the answer from Cleopas. It's almost like, you know, where have you been? How can you possibly have been in Jerusalem and not be aware of what it is that we're talking about? And then Cleopas gives the headlines, at least from his perspective. Jesus was a prophet of God. He was mighty in word. Indeed, our chief priest handed him over. He was crucified. And here we were. We were thinking that he was going to be the one to liberate Israel. We, we thought he was supposed to liberate us from the pagans. 
But instead, he was killed by the pagans, right? I mean, this is tough. Um, so then Jesus responds, you know, how long will it take for you to believe what the prophets have declared all along? Can't you see, he says, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer all these things and only then enter into his glory. And then Luke tells us, I think a key aspect of this story we'll come back to in a moment. He says that then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them all the things about him in the scriptures. So now we continue the story. Verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, like going on further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord is risen, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they, these Emmaus travelers, uh, told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. And so in the second half of this story, then, that Luke tells us, this now this is a party of three. They're still walking toward Emmaus, and they reach Emmaus, and it feels at least like initially Jesus is going to keep on going beyond the village, but they, they ask Jesus to stay with them for a while, and so they sit down for a meal. Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and he gives it to them, and boom, instantly, two things happen. One is that they instantly recognize Jesus for who he is, and secondly, he vanishes from their sight. And so instantly, okay, now quick change of plans, Cleopas and his companion they jump up and they head immediately right back to Jerusalem to gather with the other followers of Christ. And no sooner can they get their story out that the 11, the disciples, get their story out that in the meantime, Jesus has also appeared to Simon. And so now these two travelers back from Emmaus, they get to talk about their um, experience. And again, the key line from Luke that he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. So this is one scene from Luke's telling of that first Resurrection Sunday. I'd like to now ask like a series of questions. Um, and the first question is, why does Luke tell us this story? And I just want to start with really the kind of the most basic, almost clinical answer. And that is that Luke tells us this story because the Jesus followers that he interviewed in constructing what we know of as the Gospel of Luke, um, they told this story to Luke, right? Luke tells us that at the beginning, that Luke himself was not an eyewitness, but he's gathered the testimony of others, and that's how he comprised what we call the Gospel of Luke. So Luke gives us this story because the followers of Jesus told Luke this story when he interviewed them about their experiences with Jesus. And so the next question then is, why did Luke's interviewers, interviewees, why did they tell him this story? And I just want to insert a layer into this domino progression. 
and suggest that the answer to that question is because other Jesus followers had told them this story. This story had been passed along within the Jesus community from Jesus follower to Jesus follower until someone told Luke. And so the question then, why did the earlier, earliest followers of Jesus repeat this story again and again? Well, I want to suggest two answers to that question. One is because it happened, right? They repeated this story because this is one of the things that happened on that first Resurrection Sunday. But secondly, and here's where really I want to go this morning, is that the followers of Jesus repeated this story again and again because of what it meant to them in terms of their identity as a community around Jesus and the ongoing mission of Jesus. In other words, they told this story for two reasons. One, it happened, but they told it for a second reason as well, and that is that it happens. This is a part of our identity for who we are, season after season, um, in our, um, as our community continues to follow Christ. And so, this morning, what I want to do is just pull out three aspects of this story that I suspect were meaningful to the earliest Jesus community and that I know are meaningful to the Jesus community here and now in our place and in our time. Emmaus happens. And so what does Emmaus mean? Well, the first, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The crucified and risen Christ is the key to reading the Bible. Okay, think about this. The Jesus movement continued as a movement. They continued to embrace the Torah of their Jewish heritage, what we call the Old Testament. Um, but they quickly adopted a very new way of reading the Torah. And here, I think, is a concise way of pointing out the difference between the way the Jesus followers read the Torah and the way they had inherited to read the Torah. It could be something like this. For the Jewish people, Moses had been both, uh, Moses had been the revealer of God, and the Bible, the Torah, was the revelation of God. So Moses was the revealer, and the Bible was the revelation of God. But for those earliest Christians, right from the jump, it was very different. For Christians, Jesus is the revealer of God, and Jesus is the revelation of God. And this is a real difference. And this is not that the earliest Christians demoted the Torah, the Bible, the Scriptures. They didn't. It's not to say that they demoted the Scriptures. It is to say, however, that they elevated Christ as the full self-revelation of God. This is why we, we have content from, from the New Testament, things like uh, we have Jesus uh, saying to those, he says, you know, you're studying the Scriptures because you think that in them you find life, but they point to me. So this is a whole new ballgame. This is a whole new relationship with the sacred scriptures. This is why John, uh, the gospel writer John, would say something uh, 
in the earliest part of his, the Gospel of John, he would say, um, no one has seen God, but Christ has made him known. Now, John knows the stories. He knows the stories in the scriptures that there's a story that Moses had seen God. He knows there's a story that Abraham had seen God. He knows those stories are in there, but yet still he can say, look, here's what we know. No one has seen God, but Christ has made him known. This is why John could use um, the, 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 the Greek term and idea of the logos, that Jesus is the logos of God. It's, it's translated, Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the full self-communication of God. In other words, we, could, we might say it like this. Jesus is what God has to say to us about himself. Jesus is the word of God to us. And all these other voices must bow to the full self-revelation of God discovered in Christ. This was critical for the early uh, Jesus community. And I just want to say, you know, like, okay, does that matter? Is that a too fine of a point for us to, for, to have any significance? No, it matters, and you better believe it matters. See, because... I think one of the important things to recognize is that there are actually many conversations that are going on within the pages of Scripture, conversations about God, conversations about what God um, is like. And so for these earliest Christians then, Jesus is the final authoritative answer on these ongoing questions and conversations about God that are actually found within the pages of Scripture. I'll give just a couple of examples. Um, but let's take the idea of retribution. Um, there are many biblical voices that seem to say that God rewards the righteous with pleasant outcomes and circumstances in life and that God punishes the unrighteous with unpleasant outcomes and circumstances in life. In fact, this is quite common throughout the Bible, right? Like you think about the book of Deuteronomy, right? If you, if you obey these laws and commands, then things are going to be pleasant for you. You're going to have full crops. You're going to have lots of kids. I mean, it's going to be great if you obey these commands. If you don't obey these commands, then life is going to be miserable for you, right? That's, that's like the anchor point of, of the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's really almost like the entire book of Proverbs is written from that perspective, right? If you're, if you're righteous and wise, then you'll have good outcomes in life. If you're foolish and or unrighteous, then you'll have unpleasant outcomes in life. So, so you have lots of that kind of content in, in the Bible. And yet, there are also many other voices in Scripture who seem to be saying, hey, wait a minute, pause. Maybe things aren't quite so cut and dried as that. In fact, it often, too often seems like the righteous do indeed suffer and have unpleasant outcomes in their life. And it also often does seem all too often that the unrighteous prosper and have uh, pleasant outcomes in their life. So not so fast with your clean, cut and dry, you always get what you deserve kind of ideology, right? Like you have that content in the Bible as well, like the book of Job. The book of Job is kind of a case study in this sort of pushback um, against this ideology. That's the whole point of the book of Job. He was a perfectly righteous man who did indeed suffer, and God was not the cause of his suffering. 
What about the, the book of Ecclesiastes? It seems to be in direct dialogue with Proverbs, right? Proverbs says you do the right thing, good things will happen. You do the wrong thing, bad things will happen. Ecclesiastes comes along and says, wait a minute, it's not so simple. Sometimes things just seem random, you know, in life, right? So you have this conversation going on in the Bible, a very critical question, a critical issue. And then along comes Jesus, and he says things like this. Love your enemies and be children of your Father in heaven. So what's he saying? Love your enemies because this is what God is like. God actually loves his enemies. And Jesus would say something like this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. What's that? That's the ideology of retribution. It comes straight from Moses. You, you know, you take out my eye, I'll take out your eye, right? Uh, and Jesus says, but I say to you, what does he say? Turn the other cheek. What's that? That's not retribution. That's rest- restoration. It's a whole different uh, framework. Um, there was one instance where Jesus is going along and his disciples ask him, uh, or those around him ask him, uh, Jesus, who sinned so that this person was born blind? Where does that question come from? It comes from the presumptions of retribution. That someone sins and God has to punish somebody somewhere along the way. And so the presumption here is this person is experiencing this unpleasant outcome in life because someone has sinned against God. And this is the retributive punishment from God because of that sin. That's, where the, that's the question. The question is driven by this ideology of retribution. Who sinned that this person was born blind? What, is, what does Jesus say? Nobody, you knucklehead. This is, this is an opportunity for God's goodness to be put on display. Right? So Jesus takes this whole conversation and, and, and answers it emphatically. There is no retribution in God. So this is just one example. We could talk about um, issues surrounding ritual sacrifice. There are certainly some content uh, in the Old Testament um, you know, that makes it sound like sacrifice is essential to God, right? Like, like the people, because of their sin, people have polluted themselves and their community and even the, the environment around the community. So the tabernacle has to be purified with ritual sacrifice um, so that God can continue to dwell among his people. And if they don't, uh, you know, uh, follow through on these ritual sacrifices, then God won't even be able to dwell among his people. So it certainly makes it sound like, man, you know, ritual sacrifice is essential to like doing business with God and staying, you know, on board um, with God. But then there are these other, these other voices in, in, in the Bible, again, within the pages of the same, same Bible uh, that seem to say something different. The prophets come along. And they, they claim to speak on behalf of God and say, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want all that stuff. What I want is your heart over and over and over. The, the prophets say one well-known example uh, from the prophet Micah. He, God has shown you what he wants, right? He wants, you to, he wants you to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly. The psalmist will come along and say, he'll speak on behalf of God. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? I mean, come on, do you really, do you really think that? No, the, the sacrifice that God really wants is a contrite heart, right? So you have this back and forth right in the pages of the Bible. And then Jesus comes along. And it is, I think, striking to, to recognize that Jesus never quotes a single passage of Scripture uh, in support of the priestly insistence upon ritual sacrifice. Jesus does, however, quote from the rich tradition of prophetic critique against ritual sacrifice. When Jesus quotes and he says, go and learn the meaning of this, 
to obey is better than sacrifice. So, you know, just example after example, Um, uh, even the conversation about righteousness and suffering, almost unanimously, we find in the Bible the belief that the righteous should not suffer. If, in fact, the righteous are found to be suffering, then something has gone very, very wrong. God must be asleep at the controls or some such thing. Um, And then Jesus comes along, and he comes as the very embodiment of the righteousness of God. And what does he do? He endures the suffering of the cross. And, and he invites all of his followers to take up their cross and follow him. It is the way of Jesus. Through death and out the other side into new creation life. It is the way of rescue, healing, liberation. The path, the road, that's, that's the word what, when he says, I am the way, that's the hadas, the path, the road. Um, the path of Jesus through death into new life. And so then, the telling and retelling of this story, this Emmaus story, serves to remind and to shape the Jesus community as a people with this way of reading the Bible, that Jesus is the key, the touchstone, the lens through which we read the Scripture. Um, And I I just want to say, I think this is a good reminder for us as well, because sometimes today, it seems like Christians today have forgotten what the earliest Christians knew so well. See, today it seems like for many Christians... uh, seems like many Christians tend to assume that the Bible is God's full self-revelation. And so if I found a verse somewhere that says some such thing, this must be the mind of God on the matter. Um, But no, Jesus is what God has to say to us about himself. The crucified and resurrected Christ, he he is our key. He is our touchstone. He is our tour guide in reading the Bible. And so... This Easter story helps to remind both them, those Christ followers then, and even us today. The, the second piece that I think we can pull from this Emmaus story is simply this, that the crucified and risen Christ is always with us on the journey. Even, think about it, even when we're not aware of his presence with us. Um, Let's try to take this in from from this story, right? You you see these two on the road, and again, Cleopas is named, and I think it's beautiful to imagine that his unnamed companion is actually his wife, Mary. Um, So think about it. They're they're bewildered. They're despondent. they're, They're confused. Their hopes are dashed. They're in a total funk. And they're walking out of Jerusalem with all these questions And moving toward this place identified as Emmaus. And Jesus is walking with them. They didn't recognize him. 
They didn't know he was there, but he was there. See, I need this story. I need the forming, the shaping. Uh, I need the, the imagination shaping force of this story. And here's, here's why. And I, this is me, and I suspect it's many of us. Because for me, it's really, really easy for me to imagine that when I'm in a dark place, when I'm in a funk, it's obviously because God is far from me. Or it's obviously because I've moved far from God, however you want to say that. But somehow God is absent. Like it's really easy for me to imagine that when I'm in a funk, that it's because there is some separation between me and God, right? I mean, that's, I think that's how we measure our proximity to God. Like, if things are good, then I must be close to God, or he must be close to me. If things are bad for me or unpleasant somehow, dark, difficult, it must be because there's some separation between God and me, right? I mean, that's, I think that's exactly how our typical God thinking works. That's just kind of the way we think. But think about it. This story, this, this Emmaus thing, it blows all of that way of thinking right out the window. See, if nothing else, this Emmaus story, this is a picture of God's one-sided grace. The kind of one-sided grace that even when we're in a funk, maybe especially when we're in a funk, when our hearts are broken, when our hopes are dashed, this is the time when God is walking with us. So listen, I just want to say this to you right now here today, that the crucified and risen Christ is always with you on the journey, no matter what, even even when you may not realize it. And think about this, just to kind of push it a little bit more. Um, For decades, even for centuries after that first Easter, the earliest Christians continued to be on a difficult and dark journey. They faced almost uninterrupted, lethal persecution throughout the Roman world. And so imagine the effect of telling this story over and over and over again within a community facing that kind of dark difficulty and persecution. Hey, guys, even in this dark, difficult space, remember, Jesus is risen, and he is walking with us, even here, even now. That's pretty potent stuff, you know? Little wonder that this story held on and continued to be told and retold. So what about, what about us? Well, again, I just want to say uh, this story was rich and meaningful for them. And it's equally true for us today. Jesus lives and he's with us on the journey. Um, the tradition that the, the unnamed companion is the wife of Cleopas um, has resulted in really a rich practice throughout the history of the church that many married couples have found in this story um, the, 
the resources to continue to walk together and to discuss and to share their bewilderment together and to see that Jesus is with them even in the midst of their difficulty and darkness, even in the midst of difficulty and darkness in their marriages. There's a real rich, practical takeaway from this story. Um, but also, and I think you already, you already see this, but there's also for us here and now in our present circumstance with this pandemic and the quarantine um, friends and family members who are concerned, perhaps some of them ill, perhaps you've lost a friend or family member, neighbor um, who's died from the illness. This is, a, this is a difficult, dark, uncertain time for us here in an acute way. Um, and so there's a resource here in this story for us right now in this circumstances, in this circumstance that we're sharing. Um, and that is that Jesus is with us. Even in the midst of our questions, our bewilderment, our frustration, whatever it might be, he's walking with us no matter what. And then the third and final takeaway from this story is the obvious one, and it's this. We could say it this way. The crucified and risen Christ is revealed in the breaking of bread. Think about it. In that shared meal in Emmaus with Cleopas and let's just say his wife Mary and this up till now unrecognized traveler which is really interesting if you think about it they invited an unrecognized stranger traveler great Bible teacher but one they didn't exactly know who they were talking to invited him in for a shared meal and think about the story that we've just heard the Savior is revealed in the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. What does that mean? Sharing a meal. They sh they're sharing a meal. I mean, we get, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, we get that this moment points to what we know as communion, the Lord's Supper, which is a symbolic meal. But they were sharing a meal. Okay? And the Savior is revealed in the sharing of a meal together. The Savior, who is the fountainhead of God's healing transformation. This Savior, the fountain of healing. The fountain of healing transformation is revealed to them in the sharing of a meal together. <laughs> Come on, man. That's just perfect. I mean, that is just perfect. Let me... Let me just say it like this. If you can imagine a person or a people category um, that you might hold in suspicion or contempt or prejudice against in some, in some kind of way, just hypothetically imagine if there were such a soul on the planet that you would hold in that way. If you can imagine that person or person category, I want to suggest what you already know is that it's very difficult to continue to hold that person or, or an individual from that person category, to continue to hold that person in contempt or prejudice or suspicion in some way um, after you've shared a meal with them. Isn't that true? Well, what does that tell us? Well, 
what it tells us is that even still, even now, from then until now, the world over, the Savior, the fountain of healing and transformation is revealed to us in the sharing of meals together. The kingdom of God is about community, if nothing else. The kingdom of God is about people coming together across boundaries, across the lines that divide us, across the lines of suspicion, across the lines of, of, of prejudice, across the lines of contempt or whatever it might be. Maybe those words are too strong, but you get the idea. The kingdom of God is about erasing those boundaries and people coming together. Everybody, it is no accident here that the Savior, the fountainhead of transformation is revealed in the sharing of a common meal together. It's true for them then, and it's true for us now. This is why the Jesus community continued not only the practice of what we know of as the Lord's Supper, the symbolic meal, but it was a real meal, and they continued the meal fellowship of Jesus, bringing people into their homes and into their lives and sharing meals together. And this is the stuff of a revolution that has now swept the globe in the community of Christ. One final observation here before we turn the corner and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, I mentioned that for the earliest Christians, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the launch point of what's called by biblical authors again and again, the new creation. That new creation has begun in Christ. Um, so just remembering here for a moment that the earliest Christians, they saw that with the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the new creation has begun. That God's great renewal of all things is underway, is now underway, beginning with the resurrection of Christ. So Jesus is the pioneer. He's the first fruits of the new age. That's what they understood was happening with Easter. And again, this language is all throughout the New Testament. And so then, based on that observation, this meal in Emmaus... This is the first meal of the new creation, right? Now, having observed that, let me ask you to reflect upon this question. Think about the first meal in the Bible. What's the first meal in the Bible? Well, I'll read it to you. Genesis 3. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired and to make uh, one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Look at this line. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Everybody, this is the first meal in the Bible. The man and the woman fed themselves on a fruit of their own choosing, and their eyes were opened. Open to what? Shame. And then things just spin out of control from there. This is the center point of that ancient story that explains how it is that we live in a world that's so dark and so broken and so in need of healing and rescue. And now, realize when you fast forward to that first Easter in Emmaus, Luke tells us about this first meal in the new world, the new cosmos. 
And this man and woman, this man and his wife, they are fed by Jesus. And their eyes are opened. And what do they see? They see Christ, the author of life, the lover and healer of our souls. What is Luke doing telling us this story? He's saying the curse is lifted. The curse of Eden has lifted. Healing has come. Now, admittedly, for us moderns, it can be difficult to think in those kinds of terms. But that is what Luke is saying here, everybody. This is the undoing of Eden. This is the launch of God's new world. (laughs) And also, clearly, this story, as I said before, this story would serve for the earliest Jesus community and even for us today as an enduring reminder of the importance of our most central symbolic act of worship. Luke even gives us those four verbs that Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. It's almost like a formula. You see it in the Gospel of Mark, Luke, and elsewhere. And so this morning as we conclude our time together, I want to invite you, wherever you are, to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. This symbolic meal, this act of worship enjoyed by followers of Christ from that day to this day all around the world and even to think about it right now on this Easter Sunday around the world participated by believers. Um, I hope that you have some bread and a cup to drink and you can participate even right now at home with your family I want to give you a chance if you need to run to the kitchen and grab some really quick. <laughs> you can do that. We're not in any real hurry. Um, I, want to, I want to pray for you um, before we partake. Um, but I also just want to say, um, I hope that just as it was for those two in Emmaus on that Easter evening, my prayer and my hope is that our eyes would be opened and that Christ would be revealed to us in the breaking of bread, the Savior, the healer, the... Well, like I said before, the fountain of new creation. Man, that's what we need, right? Father, we need for you to make all things new. We need for you to cause us to be aware of your presence here and now. Healing, transforming, renewing. Father, would you work within your church, would you work within your world, restore, heal, transform. Jesus, cause us to be more and more aware of your presence here with us, even even in our bewilderment, with all the questions, with all the frustration that we are now 
experiencing. We pray for you to cause us to be aware that you are present, near, on the journey with us. Many of you have this practice in your life. It has been my practice for many years um, to pray the prayers of the Apostle Paul as found in his various writings and letters to churches. This morning, I'd like to pray for you from one of the Apostle Paul's prayers in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And so I'm going to take Paul's words and pray them from me to God for you. Father, we come before you, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. And I pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant that we might be strengthened in our inner being with power through your spirit. And I pray, Father, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith as we continue to be rooted and grounded in love. And I pray, Father, that we as a church family and an extended church family, I pray that we would have power to comprehend together with all your saints around the world, that we would have power to comprehend what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you, Father, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. I love this invitation to the Lord's table. It's given to us, I think, from the Anglican tradition. Somebody can check me on that. So this is not original with me. But I think it's good for us anytime, but even now especially. Um, This is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It's made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. Come, you you who have been here often and you who haven't been here for a long time or even ever before. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Because these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because the church invites you and not because I invite you, but it's Christ 
who invites you to be known here, to be embraced here, and to be fed here. So come, you who want Christ, you can come and meet him here. This all began between Jesus and his disciples, of course, when he said, he broke bread with them and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he invited them to eat it. And then he took a cup and said, this is a new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And had to, that had to shake them up in that moment. But just as he invited them to eat his broken body and to drink his poured out blood, he invites us as well to unite ourselves with him in this way. That's what we're doing. That's why we call it communion. We're punctuating our commonness with Jesus. Common cause, common mission, common salvation. We are partaking of his salvation. And we're doing this together. And so we're punctuating our commonness together as followers of Christ, even in our distributed way. There's almost like a certain defiance about this for us in a time like this. Um, and so I hope that you have the elements available where you are. And I want to invite you to go ahead and eat now. I read from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 12. He says, I received, uh, 11 actually, I received a tradition from the Lord which I also handed on to you. The night on which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I want to invite you to go ahead and eat. He did the same thing with the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he invited him to drink, and I invite you to drink now. And then Paul concludes. He says, every time you drink it, do this to remember me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you broadcast the death of the Lord until he comes. And Jesus, we do. We say that our hope is in you, in your crucified and now risen 
permanent life. Our hope is in you. We bless you. We honor you. And we celebrate your resurrection. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Happy Easter. We're going to sing a closing song, and you can hang out with us for as long as you want, or if you want to move on to whatever's next for Easter Sunday, you're welcome to do that as well. God bless you.